0: and discover how you can build your life around Jesus Christ. I'm Nathan Johnson, and in today's episode, we are going to wrap up our discussion on the important missing ingredient to your Bible study, context. Let's dive in. Over the last three episodes, we've been talking about the importance of Bible context and the fact that as you are reading or studying the Bible, you need to read and study in light of the context. Now, again, we've been walking through seven important aspects of context. Now, the one we typically think of is the one where it's like whatever is surrounding the particular passage in which we're reading. In other words, the context of Ephesians chapter three is Ephesians chapter one and two and chapters four and five. And yet there's actually a lot of different elements to this idea of context. That's really important to keep in mind as we're studying scripture. So over the last couple of episodes, we've been walking through each of these seven different types of context. We've looked at the historical context, the cultural context, the linguistic and grammatical context, and the literary context. Now, if you haven't listened to those episodes, I would encourage you to pause this particular episode, go back and listen to the last couple of them, because I think that will really set the tone for where we're at today as we are wrapping up this conversation on context. Well, let's dive into these last three key contexts. The fifth one is this idea of the scriptural context. It really is this idea of the place of a passage in a particular book and where that book sits in the overall scripture. This has become really important to me as I've studied through books of the Bible. For example, why is it that this particular author puts these things in this order? Uh, For example, in the book of Matthew, Matthew is writing to Jews that Jesus was and is the kingly Messiah. So it's really significant that when Matthew records Jesus's Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter five, six, and seven, it's not by accident then that as you read through chapters eight, nine, and 10, Matthew is giving the lived out version of the Sermon on the Mount. In other words, Jesus preaches this phenomenal message and then he goes out and just doesn't talk about it, he actually lives it. So when I begin to think in terms of this scriptural context, I'm looking for the connections of passages or sections. And a lot of times we miss this as we just skip through or just pick up a little passage and kind of run with it. To to give another illustration, you could look at Matthew chapter 18, verse 15. I, I've heard this passage. Uh, given so many times in light of church discipline. Let me just read this. It says, moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. And if he hears you, well, you've gained your brother. But if he will not hear, take with you one or two more that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. And if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. Now, most of us have heard that in light of church discipline. Someone sins, and so you confront them, and they say, nope, I'm not repenting. So you grab somebody, you gang up on them, you go to their house, you bang on their door, and you say, hey, repent. They say no. Then you bring it before the church, and then you have this big church meeting, and you kick them out of the church. Well, when you look at the actual passage in light of this scriptural context, you start to realize that that's actually a bad understanding of that passage. The passage right before this one is all about a shepherd going after his lost sheep. That here's a shepherd. He loses a sheep. And what does he do? With great earnestness, he goes and tracks down that sheep and rescues him. And then you have our passage. And then what happens immediately after that passage is Peter asking the question, well, how many times am I supposed to forgive up to seven times? And Jesus says, no, I tell you 70 times seven. And then Jesus gives his parable about a servant who owes a king a great wealth and yet the king forgives the debt. But then that servant goes out and demands a little tiny bit of money from a fellow servant. Now, again, as you look at the whole flow of the passage, what you have to come to the conclusion of is, well, what is Jesus actually saying in terms of, well, when someone sins against me? Well, what Jesus is saying then is not how quick can we kick him out of a church, but rather, our heart should be reconciliation and restoration. So when someone sins against me, I need to go after them like a shepherd going after a lost sheep, and I did. I need to be begging and asking them to repent. And if they don't repent, then I get someone else to join me and say, "Please, you've got to repent," because we're after the reconciliation, we're after the restoration of their soul. And if they still don't repent, well, we get the whole church to gang up on them and every day go into their house and give them casserole dishes and say, "Please repent. You need Jesus." Well, and if they still don't repent, all right, yes, we need to remove them from the fellowship of the body because you can't be a Christian and live that way. And yet they're to be to us like a heathen, a sinner, and a tax collector. Well, how do we treat sinners and tax collectors? Don't we go down to their house and bang on their door and ask them to repent and go after them like a shepherd going after a lost sheep? Again, it's really important to remember That as we're reading scripture, we need to see how does my particular passage connect with the things around it. So look at the order of a passage. Look at how a paragraph fits in the larger section. As I've been studying through Ephesians, I've been often asking the question, why would Paul put this immediately after this concept? Or why, why is this in the middle of these two ideas? And sometimes as I rustle through that, God gives great illumination and understanding of why a particular passage sits in the place that it does. So again, that's what I would call the scriptural or the canon context. Number six and number seven are rather similar. So let me just combine them. The other thing that I think you should consider in the light of context is the geographical, that's number six, and the visual, that's number seven, context. The geographical context is this idea that everything happened somewhere. The more I've taken trips over to Israel and taken groups and studied the Bible on location, the more profound the geographical context has been in my mind. Starting to realize that every location is significant and not just where it is at, though that's really significant, but also the names behind the location. And in a future study, I'm going to dive more into that idea because I love this idea of the geographical context, but I would encourage you as you're studying, look up grab an atlas and figure out where is this thing located? What is the name of this place mean? For example, Jesus is called a Nazarene because he's from the town of Nazareth. And yet the town Nazareth means a branch or a shoot. And that's really important because as you go to the Old Testament, stuff like Isaiah and Zechariah and Jeremiah, we are told that when the Messiah comes, he is gonna be called the branch, that he's gonna be called a netzer, And it's a beautiful picture of an olive shoot. And again, and I've walked this before, but when you look at how an olive tree grows and realize that the new shoot of an olive tree, it's formed in the same root system, but it's establishing a brand new thing that you see. And that's exactly what Jesus is doing. So it's not by accident that Jesus came from a place called Nazareth or the shoot. Why? Because his name is the branch there's so many profundities in scripture about where things are located or the name behind the place. It would almost be similar to if I use the term, Hey, nine 11. Well, most people in our culture today know exactly what nine 11 means. Even if you weren't born when it happened back in 2001, you know what that term means. And in a similar sense, a lot of the Bible authors are writing in such a way where they're using names or places or titles where they just presume that you understand what it means. And that's really similar to this idea of the visual context. The Bible doesn't give you a lot of clues on what things looked like because, well, they were just normal for that day. If you don't realize that the roofs in the Middle East are flat. So in Mark, when the friends bring their paralytic friend and they break through the roof and lower him down, well, it's important to recognize, well, what would a house have looked like in that day? Or why is it in Luke chapter 15, when you have this woman who loses a coin, but then she lights a lamp and searches her house? Well, why does she have to light a lamp? And wouldn't it have been easy to find a coin if you drop it in your house? Well, realizing that the bottom of a house, right, the floor was often stone or dirt and there weren't windows. There's often a little tiny crack at the top, maybe in most houses for ventilation. They didn't have windows. So it had been dark, it had been pretty you know, enclosed in that sense, and coins would often fall down into the stones and you would lose them. In fact, a lot of archaeologists have mentioned that they found a lot of coins in the bottom of houses. So this is a common thing that would have been known to the people in this area. Uh, obviously, it's a very agricultural system, uh, a gregarian system that Jesus is talking to. So when it's talking about farming, they would have known what these things looked like. So if you don't know what something looks like, if you don't know what it would have smelled like or, you know, whatever, (laughs) go look those things up because it will help you understand the depth of whatever it is you're reading or studying. Now, in an upcoming series, I wanna break this down even more because I love talking about the geographical and the visual context. I'm gonna give you a whole bunch of illustrations, but I'll save that for another series. For right now, I just, again, wanna encourage you As you are reading or studying your Bible, see it in light of the context. And again, we've been walking through seven key contexts. We've looked at the historical, the cultural, we've looked at the linguistic or grammatical, in other words, the words and their meanings, the grammar, the literary context, like genre, the scriptural context. In other words, where is it placed in the book or where's that book placed in terms of the author's writings or even the whole Bible? We've looked at the geographical and the visual context. All that to say, as you are studying, don't just read through or gloss over or just take it and put it into 21st century, whatever country you're from. Rather, seek to dive into the world of the Bible. And again, the Old Testament is very different from the New Testament. In fact, even in the Old Testament, the wilderness wanderings was very different than, say, the time of the kings. And that's very different than the time of the Babylonian captivity. So seek to understand the Bible in its context. What was that particular author inspired by the Holy Spirit saying to that particular audience of which he is writing? And I promise you, if you would look at the Bible in light of its context, one, you won't get crazy and take a whole bunch of verses out of the context, but two, the depth and the richness of the Bible will just blossom forth. And oh, I really, really want that for you. Well, if you want to take this idea of studying the Bible even deeper, I would encourage you to check out a lot of my resources at deeperchristian.com forward slash Bible. I'm almost done with my saturation Bible study book. It's kind of like a mixture of a book and a workbook kind of put together. And I'm so excited to get that into your hands. I think it'll be a great blessing and resource for just taking this idea of Bible study even deeper. But before that even comes out, if you just want some great resources, I have a lot of podcasts and articles on the topic, and you can get a list of all those at deeperchristian.com forward slash Bible, or by going to the show notes for this episode at deeperchristian.com forward slash 216 for episode 216. And there's a link there to go see that whole list of resources in the Bible. Now I've had a lot of people ask me, well, where do I find the information for these contexts? And a lot of it, I have to admit, is you got to grit your teeth and kind of (laughs) study. It's work. And yet, if you want some good resource help, I also have a link to a whole list of recommended resources for culture and history and atlases and all that kind of stuff. And you can see all of that either on that deeperchristian.com forward slash Bible page, or again, there's a link to that in the show notes for this particular episode at deeperchristian.com forward slash 216. Well, I hope this little mini-series has helped you to at least take one step into the great depths and the richness of God's word. As Paul tells those in Colossae in Colossians 3.16, may the word of God dwell in you richly. And that's my prayer for you as well, that the word of the Lord would dwell in you richly. Well, thank you for listening to this episode of the Deeper Christian Podcast. Until next time, know I am praying for you and cheering you on as you build your life around Jesus Christ.